Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. I hope that you've been encouraged by our Lord this Thanksgiving weekend. I b- believe, I've, as I prayed earlier, I believe that Thanksgiving is a uniquely Christian holiday with its focus on giving thanks. In the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, the first great characteristic of the true Christian is always a sense of thankfulness and gratitude to God. The world does not, as we know, the world does not naturally give thanks for what they've been given. Jerry Bridges has said, Thanksgiving is not a natural virtue. It is the fruit of, or a fruit of the Spirit given by Him, by our Lord. Truly, the world does not recognize God as the giver of good things. And as Christians, we should fully recognize that God opens His hand and He satisfies the desire of every living thing. That's Psalm 145.16. There's no creature, there's no living creature that does not owe its existence, fully owe its existence to our Lord. He sustains this world and all that it contains by the word of His power. I love Psalm 100, not just at Thanksgiving, I love it because of its rich imagery of how God has blessed us. Just listen to Psalm 100, verses 1-3. through Make a loud shout to Yahweh, all the earth. Serve Yahweh with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. Know that Yahweh is our God. He is our God. <clears throat> and it is He who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. In our modern world, we have learned an incredible amount about how we, have, we are made. Modern medicine has built up a, a vast store of knowledge about the human body, yet David's simple words written over 3,000 years ago are just as applicable today as the day that he wrote them. It is Yahweh who has made us, and not we ourselves. Now listen to the rest of the psalm. Psalm 100, verses 4 and 5. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name, for Yahweh is good. His loving kindness endures forever and His faithfulness to generation unto generation. I don't care who you are today. I don't care if you're the youngest here or the oldest here. You ought to live in thanksgiving knowing that Yahweh is good. And His loving kindness endures forever. Beloved, the world around us may have changed over our lifetimes, yet Yahweh's goodness has not. His loving kindness does endure. And as Christians, every day should be a day of thanksgiving for Yahweh's goodness, His loving kindness, and His faithfulness. And more than anything, as I prayed earlier, we should give thanks for salvation. He has saved His people from their sins. He has saved us by His grace through faith. He has granted us salvation in the name of His Son, the Lord Jesus. As I said earlier, Thanksgiving is a uniquely Christian time. Or Thanksgiving is a uniquely Christian, if you will. Only the genuine Christian has understanding of what God has done in giving us His only begotten Son. Apostle John reminds us in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. It is the gift of eternal life. Dwelling with God forever 
It is this reality that should cause the Christian to live in a constant state of thankfulness. Before Christ saved us, we were lost. We faced the prospect of God's eternal wrath, yet in His kindness, He has shown us grace and mercy. And it is for this gift, the gift of the cross, the free gift of salvation, that we ought to be eternally thankful. Now as we pray to our Lord to open our sermon, we should keep the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones at the front of our thoughts. The measure of our spirituality, get this, this is so profound. The measure of our spirituality is the amount of praise and thanksgiving in our prayer. How many of us pray as if God is some sort of genie? He's here to give us what we want. But in reality, knowing that God has given us everything we need ought to be enough to cause us to pray, praise Him and give thanks to Him in everything that we do. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are... <clears throat> I pray that we are thankful. And yet I know that we fall short. Whereas we think about this Thanksgiving holiday where the, the world stops and, and shops close and things people spend time with family. Lord, we know that at the very same time the world shakes its fist at you and says that they don't need you. They don't give thanks. Father, I pray that as a church that we would understand that we would live a life of giving thanks. That our life would be such that we understand that even the, the breath that we breathe, the air that we breathe in, the oxygen that we breathe in, that, Lord, You provide that. Father, the gravity that holds this all together, the, the, the power of, of, the, of the, your, the power that you hold this world together with is from you, and we should give thanks. We should give thanks that we can wake up in the morning and, and all things, the, the sun rises and, and time goes on. It's all because of your sovereign hand. And I pray that we would give thanks for you and for all that you do. In Christ's name, amen. Well, Jonathan Edwards was in his 20s when he moved to Northampton to, to assist, Northampton to assist his grandfather, the Reverend Solomon Stoddard. His grandfather pastored the only church in town. During his time as the town's pastor, Stoddard had led the church's congregation in some times of spiritual renewal and wakefulness, but when he passed away, he left Jonathan Edwards as the town's only pastor. Almost immediately upon Stoddard's death, spiritual life in the town and the church began to wane. The young people started to party and carouse, and they paid very little attention to spiritual things. In those days, ministry life did not look very good for Jonathan Edwards. And so, rightfully, he wondered what would, what would come of his ministry as a pastor. During this dark, these dark days, Edwards prayed hard for a revival in the town. 
In all, he survived five years of crippling anxiety over the, the town and his position as pastor. Yet, he continued to pray hard, and he continued to work hard, and he continued to be faithful. And in the early months of 1734, the early sparks of a revival started in a nearby village. In April of that same year, two unexpected deaths rocked the youth. The first was a young man in the bloom of his youth, and, and, and in the words of one observer, he was violently seized with pleurisy and died in about two days. The other was a young married woman who had been considerably, in, in Jonathan Edwards', Edwards words, considerably exercised in mind about the salvation of her soul before she fell ill. Now as her illness began, she was greatly distressed, and as she approached death, she showed evidences of, of God's saving grace. And as the day came near, as the day of her death came near, she spent her time earnestly warning and counseling the youth to turn from their sin and to God. As Jonathan Edwards noted of her passing, he said this young woman's death seemed to contribute to the solemnizing of the spirits of many young persons, and there began evidently to appear more of a religious concern on the people's mind. Edwards took advantage of their concerns by encouraging them to turn, to the, turn their Thursday evening partying into an opportunity to meet for Christian fellowship and prayer. After the town was forced to deal with uh, the, the bizarre and surprising death of another citizen, this time it was the strange death of an older citizen. According to Edwards, at that time, many were much moved and affected by the tragedy. In response, the adults began to meet on Sunday evenings for fellowship and prayer and hymn sings. And soon after, these meetings began to lead to revival among the people. And hey, just listen to Edwards as he describes the profound changes to corporate worship. He says this, Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service. Everyone was earnestly intent on the public worship. The assembly in general were from time to time in tears while the word was preached. Some weeping with sorrow and distress, others with joy and love, and others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbors. End quote. As revival waxed and waned, Edwards continued to faithfully pray and preach the word of God. His faithfulness led to even greater revivals which continued into the 1740s, and by that time, Jonathan Edwards had, had joined with George Whitfield. The faithful prayer and, and preaching of Jonathan Edwards, along with the fiery preaching of Whitfield, led to the great awakening, to a great awakening among God's people. As I think about these things, I'm reminded of another time of revival under the preaching of Martin Lloyd Jones. Lloyd-Jones was a former doctor in London, and he was called into ministry, and he ultimately was called to Sandfields in the country of Wales. His preaching led to the conversion of many who previously thought that they were Christian. Uh, surprisingly enough, his own wife Bethan became a believer as she sat under her husband's preaching. His preaching also led to the conversion of, a, of the principal lay leader at the church in Sandfields. Before the man, that man was saved, he thought the church should be more involved in politics. He thought that the primary work of the church was to support causes and, and political candidates. He, he wanted the church to primarily advocate changes in public policy and petition for legislative reform and regulatory reform. He would later confess, I put politics before the gospel and change in the prevailing culture before personal change. 
After God saved his soul, that man clearly recognized that the preaching of God's word was the only way to see change in men. Lloyd-Jones stayed in, in Sandfields for 10 years. He, he pre- his preaching led to many saved souls from inside the church uh, at the beginning and those outside the church to, uh, toward the end of his ministry. After his experience in, at Sandfields, Lloyd-Jones had much to say about revival. He states, Revival above everything else is a glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is, a, it is the restoration of Him to the center of the life of the church. End quote. Church, there are many examples of revival amongst God's people. Yet perhaps the, the greatest, some of the greatest examples come from the pages of Scripture. One example would be the revival under Ezra's te- uh, preaching in Nehemiah 8. The book of Acts records several examples of revival, including Paul's ministry at a, at a place called Thessalonica. Take your Bibles and, and turn to Acts chapter 17. Now we'll also be in 1 Thessalonians 1. So you may want to, take, to find your place in Acts chapter 17 and then turn to 1 Thessalonians 1 because and, and, we're going to be back and forth between the two. This morning, we're going to take a brief look at Paul's ministry in and message to the church at Thessalonica. And in doing so, we will take the time to review our church's fourth pillar. We, need, we exist, that is, we exist as a church to evangelize the lost. Now, over these past few weeks, we've taken the time from the pulpit to review and to reestablish GBCs, our Grace Bible Church's four pillars. We started three Sundays ago by looking at the first pillar. We studied Revelation chapter one through, chapters 1-5 through five and saw that our goal as a church is to worship God in all that we do. We exist to exalt Him. So we should endeavor then to exalt Him in our prayer. We should endeavor to exalt Him in our music and in our reading of Scripture and in our preaching and in our fellowship. In all that we do, we exist to exalt God. In the words of the Apostle Paul, it says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. At Grace Bible Church, we endeavor to exalt God in all that we do. After that, we looked at the second pillar. We exist to exposit the Scripture. You see, God has revealed Himself in His Word. We know Him. We can know Him by knowing His Word. Paul reminded Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for preaching or for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. Then he charged Timothy, he said this, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is, the, who is to judge the living and dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and teaching. Beloved, Paul made this charge to Timothy because as Christians we need to be the people, be a people of the Word of God. Only a people committed to His Word, only a people who know Him by His Word can truly exalt Him. Last week, Keith led us, led us through, his, or through our third pillar. We exist to equip the saints. As Christians, especially new Christians, we cannot grow on our own. We can't. We, we're lost. We don't know what we're doing. We're groping in the dark. We need to be equipped for God's work. 
Therefore, in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, we saw that Christ, that Jesus, gave gifts to his church. He gave these gifts to equip the saints for the work of the service to the building up of the body of Christ. Our Lord does not want us to remain as children who are tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. He wants us to speak the truth in love and to grow to be more like Christ. And we do that when we're equipped. We do that when we're equipped. This leads us to today's pillar, the fourth pillar of Grace Bible Church. We exist to evangelize the lost. Now we'll do this, we'll look at this by looking at Acts 17, 1-9, and by looking at 1 Thessalonians 1. Now, let me give you some context to the, the book of 1 Thessalonians. The Apostle Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians somewhere around A.D. 51. According to the book of Acts, Paul made his first visit to Thessalonica, or some call it Thessalonica, Thessalonica is what I call it, uh, on his second, he, he visited there on his second missionary journey. He traveled to the, city, to the city of Thessalonica from Philippi after he had been harshly treated there. In 1 Thessalonians 2.2, 2, he makes the reference, a reference to his suffering in Philippi. He says, but after we had already uh, suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, he, he had preached the gospel and, and, and the, they did not take that very well there, and so he, was, he had suffered. Now, while holding your place in, in 1 Thessalonians, turn back to Acts chapter 16. According to Luke, in Acts 16.22, Paul and Silas were beaten with rods in Philippi, and they were thrown into prison and had their feet fastened in stocks. Now, after being released from prison, they traveled to Thessalonica, where, according to Acts chapter 17, verse 2, Paul immediately went to the synagogue. And he, as was his custom, he began reasoning from, with them from the Scriptures. He, he was explaining and setting before them that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is that Christ. In other words, Paul preached from the Old Testament showing that the Messiah had to suffer and die and be resurrected. You see, he preached to the, the synagogue in Thessalonica. He preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. Now, I love Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 2, 2. After he had suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, we had the, the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much struggle. You see, the Apostle Paul could have wrote the lyrics to that Tom Petty song, I won't back down. You see, he had been treated harshly and suffered for the preaching of the gospel in, in Philippi, so what did he do? He traveled to Thessalonica and he did the same thing. He boldly preached and he wouldn't back down from preaching the cross of Jesus Christ. And according to Acts 17.2, Paul spent three Sabbaths reasoning with the Jews from that city. And amazingly, according to Acts 17.4, some of them were persuaded. And, and joined Paul and Silas along with a great multitude of God-fearing Greeks and not a, few of, not a few of the leading women. Now, we don't know exactly how 
long Paul stayed in Thessalonica, but he was probably there uh, around four to six months. And in that time, he developed a, a relationship with those who had, who had heard the gospel and had turned to Christ, and he was able to teach them much doctrine during his time there. In 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul reminds the church of his, of his close relationship with them. He reminds them of the, the circumstances of surrounding the, their arrival in the, the city. And in 1 Thessalonians 2, he appeals to how he and the team had lived among them during those months. He makes these appeals to show that they enjoyed true gospel ministry while they were in the city. This team, Paul's team, had come on behalf of Christ and not for their own glory. And they had had the boldness in God to preach the true gospel amongst much struggle. In other words, just put simply, their, their ministry was from God. And, and do you want to know Paul's main argument or proof of this? Paul argued that, the true, that true gospel ministry will always result in true salvation. And true salvation will always result in a changed life. A life that exalts God. Therefore, in writing to the church at Thessalonica, Paul argues that there are two clear and conclusive proofs of true salvation. First, true salvation always results in a clear change in your direction. That's verses 2 through 8, chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. Secondly, true salvation always results in a conclusive change in your destination. So, first, a clear change in your direction. Secondly, a conclusive change in your destination. Let's look at the first proof. True salvation always results in a clear change in your direction. As I said earlier, this morning we're going to step through 1 Thessalonians 1. So let's pick up in 1 Thessalonians verse, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father... And the Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> grace to you and peace. He starts in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Now, in these verses, these first two verses, Paul wants the church to know how thankful he and the ministry team are for them. Now look at verse 3, where Paul reminds them of the power of the gospel. Paul tells them that in their prayers they remember... Uh, they remember without ceasing their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ before our God and Father. That is the content of their prayer. In other words, they remember the fruit of salvation which they exhibited, this, these people in Thessalonica exhibited from the time they heard the gospel. They had shown this fruit in their faith in and their love for and their hope in the Lord Jesus. Now look back at verse 4. Knowing, brothers, beloved by God, your election. This is, a, this is the literal translation of uh, the Greek phrase. The ESV translates this verse, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. The, the NET version translates that we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Each of those translations highlights God's special choice of those dear saints in Thessalonica. Now, Paul says much the same thing to the church at Ephesus. He tells them that God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That's Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. 
Now back in, in 1 Thessalonians 1, 5, where Paul, Paul gives his reason for confidence in their election. Just listen to these words. Just listen to them. Verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full assurance. Now as we work through this text, I want you to hold on to those words. You see, Paul wants that church, the church at Thessalonica, he wants them to know that the gospel they preached, the gospel of God, it didn't come in word only. Said another way, it wasn't just some rote message. It wasn't just some stale teaching with no power. It it wasn't just a, a stiff orthodoxy bereft of the Spirit. No, their gospel was not just mere words. Now, we can be certain that it came to them as words. It came to them as a message. Notice he, did, he says he doesn't say that it came in word only. Uh, you see, there was a message. He did preach the gospel. Paul and his missionary team preached Christ crucified. His message to the Thessalonians was of a crucified Savior. <clears throat> Paul powerfully preached the cross of Jesus, the Messiah. In 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24, Paul declared to the church at Corinth that this message was the power of God and, and the wisdom of God to those who are called. <coughs> Paul, Paul boldly preached the cross. He boldly preached the cross of Christ because he knew its power to save sinners. He didn't back down even in the face of opposition. He was treated poorly. He suffered in Philippi. But what did he do? He got up and he went to Thessalonica and he preached the same message. And he was able to do this. Look at verse 5 again. He was able to do this because that gospel, the gospel of God, came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full assurance. You know what they were assured of? they were assured that that gospel was what the people needed and that it would truly have results. And in this verse, Paul appeals to the power and and the effectiveness of the gospel preached to save sinners. When the church heard the gospel preached by Paul and his team, they were given the gift of the Holy Spirit and they were given a, a full assurance of their salvation. Again, notice the end of verse 5. Paul wanted them to recognize, he wanted this church to recognize that the time they spent with the church matched the message that they preached. Later in in 1 Thessalonians 2, he described the ministry in Thessalonica. He said, look at at your text in verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3. He says, For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Look down in verse 5. For we never came with flattering word, as you know, nor with pretext for greed. God is witness. You see, Paul preached the gospel and the power of the Spirit, and he lived by that same power, and he understood the power of gospel preaching and of gospel living. Now the background is, is he's being accused. He's being accused of wrongdoing. And he's, and he's defending, he's defending the ministry. And he's saying, I didn't come to you in these ways. I preached the gospel. I preached the gospel. And what Paul is doing now, starting in verse 6, he's reminding them of the fruit of their conversion. Look at verse 6. You also became imitators of us 
and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction and, and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You see, after Paul and his team arrived, he preached the gospel in Thessalonica, and the people responded by imitating them and, and, and imitating the Lord. In, in this verse, I, I, believe, I think Paul is referring to a specific incident that occurred in the city during their stay. If you turn back, I told you to hold your place in Acts 17. Turn back to Acts 17 real quick. In Acts 17... Uh, verse 4, we saw the, the positive response to the gospel, but there was a, a, a negative reaction as well. Luke tells us that there was a, a great uproar in the city. Now look down at verses 5 through 8. This is Acts 17, through, 5, through, 5 through 7. He writes, But the Jews, becoming jealous, taking along some wicked men from the marketplace and forming a mob, set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the assembly. Who were they seeking to bring it out? Paul and the team. Paul, Savannah, and Timothy. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brothers before the city authorities. So these people from Thessalonica were, were being dragged before the authorities. And, and they were shouting, look at, this, look at your text, they were shouting, these men have upset the world, have come here also, and, and Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So what's happening is the mob assumed that Paul and Silas and Timothy were at Jason's house, when the mob figured out they weren't there, they began attacking Jason and the brothers, and they brought them before the city authorities and made accusations against them. Again, they were, they, were, they were shouting at them, and they were accusing them. Now, go back to 1 Thess 1.6. I think Paul is clearly referring to that incident where Jason and the brothers were harshly treated. He says that they endured that affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Beloved, the only way we can find true joy in the midst of suffering is if we're truly saved. And that's what's happening here. And, and, and during suffering with joy is, is the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, 22 and 23, Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The Christian walking in the Spirit will exhibit these, exhibit these fruit. They, they will happen even as they suffer. And that's what happened with the Thessalonians, that is. But their, their supernatural joy as they suffered for Christ evidenced their, the reality of their salvation. This joy showed that they truly had the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. Therefore, they could write, he could rightly say, Paul, that is, could rightly say that they were imitators of him and of the Lord Jesus. And as such, look at verse 7. They became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Here, I want you to think about this. In, in, a, in a few short months, this church was formed. They had even suffered for the cause of Christ, and they became a model for other believers in the region. Look at verse 8. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. You see, they had come to know the Lord 
and only a little while later they had suffered for his name. And evidently the story of their conversion had, had sounded forth from their church, not only in the region, but it had, had reverberated around the known world. Their, their story had resulted in further ministry in Thessalonica and in the regions of Macedonia and Achaia and even beyond. Everywhere their story became known, people were turning to the Lord. I want you to know and understand how powerful this is. Even today, we're listening to their story, and we ought to be amazed at what God did. Imagine with me for a moment. This, this is an idol-worshiping people who heard the gospel, and within a few months, they became a model of true faith to everyone who heard the story of their conversion. Friends, that's a clear change in direction. Their conversion was so profound that Paul and his team had no need to say anything. They didn't even need to recount the story. Look at, look at verse 9. I want you to know, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I mean, this is, this is my, probably my life verse. It is. Look at verse 9. For they themselves report, those who hear the story, they report about us, what kind of entrance we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. The, the account of Paul's and his team's arrival in, in, in Thessalonica had gone forth, and the people had responded to the preaching of the gospel, and that, that report had reverberated around the known world. And, and what was the, the, the fruit of their ministry? Look, at, look back at verse 9. They had turned from idols to serve a living and true God. I'm not sure I can overstate the profound nature of that change. If, if you want to know what repentance looks like, here it is. True conversion, true salvation involves a person turning from their sin, turning from their idols, and turning to Christ. In this case, the Thessalonians, Thessalonians turned from their false gods to serve a living and true God. They completely abandoned their old way of life the worship of dead idols to serve Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Friends, true salvation always. You can bold that, underline it, italicize it, make it in 24 font. Always produces a clear change in direction. It's, it's, that's the truth of the Bible. Here's the question. Have you turned from your idols? Have you turned from your life of sin to serve a living and true God? Beloved, true salvation brings with it a clear and profound change of direction. And it's not just what we see on the pages of Scripture. It is true no matter what. When you are saved, you move from serving the created, whether it be money, whether it be power, prestige, whether it be cars, houses, all those things. You, you, serve, you, turn, you move or you turn from serving the created to serving the Creator. Your love for the world and the things of the world changes to love for God and things above. A true Christian cannot continue a, a friendship with the world after turning to Christ. It's a conflict that can't happen. James says it this way in James 4.4. 4. In, in, in typical James fashion, 
He says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God. I love James's answer to the problem in James 4, 8-10. I hope that you'll take this to heart. His answer is, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and cry. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. Beloved, as I said, true salvation results in a clear change in direction. You can't have it both ways. You can't live both sides of of that coin. And the goal of true gospel ministry is to preach the gospel so that the saved, the lost will be saved. So that the lost know that they're lost. So that they may be found. That's the goal of this church. We exist to evangelize the lost. We truly desire for the lost to be saved. Therefore, we preach the gospel. We don't, we don't deal with politics Uh, because we know that that's not what's going to produce true change. I'm just thinking back to Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's the Gospel, beloved. It's the Gospel. It's the Gospel of God. You want the, the report of the faith of this church, your faith to reverberate throughout this city, throughout this state, throughout this nation, throughout the whole world, so much so that we have nothing to say if we're truly focused on evangelizing the lost with the true gospel of Jesus Christ, we will witness the fruit of our labor. With that, let's look at the second proof. True salvation always results in a conclusive change in destination, in your destination. Look down at 1 Thess 1.10. For they themselves report about us what kind of interest we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Church, there's a lot of truth packed into that verse. Paul has a profound expectation, a profound expectation that the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, will return from heaven one day. In Acts chapter 1, Luke tells us that Jesus was lifted into heaven, lifted up into heaven as his disciples watched intently. And, and he tells us in, in Luke chapter 1, verse 11, that Jesus will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Paul certainly had that expectation that Jesus would return one day, maybe even in his own lifetime. As a matter of fact, he references his return, the Lord's return, several times in his letters to the Thessalonians. He mentions, he mentions in, ver, in chapter 3, verse 13, he mentions uh, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. In chapter 4, verses 15 through 17, he says, until the coming of the Lord. He, he, says, he says it again, uh, over, over, and over. He says, for the Lord himself will uh, descend from heaven with a shout. And he, he goes on to say, so we'll, we will always be with the Lord. Uh, the Lord is returning, and that's the truth that, that Paul b- believed and, and that he, he wrote to the, to, the, to the Thessalonians. And he said the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, that they would be without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus. This should be instructive to us. 
You see, we don't know when the Lord Jesus will return, but we do know His coming is imminent. It's imminent. He may not come for many more years, but He could very well come very soon. As Christians, we must live as Paul did. We must live expecting His return at any time. Yet, we must live with the understanding that He will come in, in due course according to His sovereign time, timing. And, and, and there's no room for, for dismay. There's no room for slothfulness. There's no room for laziness. Uh, there's much work to be done as we preach the Gospel to a lost and dying world who face the wrath of God. Look back at your text in 1 Thess 2.10. Or 1.10, that is. And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. Church, this is the, the heart of the Gospel. We serve Jesus, whom God say, raised from the dead. He, he, hey, he is a risen Savior who has conquered sin and death. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, Paul says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart, the heart a person believes, leading to righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, leading to salvation. Beloved, we know, as Christians, we know that one day our Lord will return in glory. We may disagree on how that's going to be, but I think all of us that are true Christians recognize that our Lord will return in glory. Look back at your text in verse 10. 1 Thess 1.10 He will return to rescue us from the wrath to come. I think Paul is referring to God's eternal wrath. Later in the letter in 1 Thessalonians 5.9 he, he says to the Thessalonians, For God has not appointed us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, not only does true salvation produce a clear change in direction, it, it produces a conclusive change in your eternal destination. Before Christ saves us, we are bound for God's eternal wrath and hell for our sins. That's not a popular message, but it's the, the, the truth nonetheless. In Ephesians 2.2, Paul told the church at Ephesus they, that they were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. They were on the path to hell and damnation. In James 4.12, James again tells us there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. In 2 Peter 3.10, Peter warns that the heavens will pass away with a, a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be found out. The truth is that, church, the truth is that God will judge this present world with all its evil works. The truth is, uh, beloved, that God is the righteous judge and He will pour out His wrath on those who don't know Him. That's not a popular message today. It's not popular. Preaching this truth won't do much to grow your church in numbers. But it is true nonetheless. And we must not shrink back from declaring the truth. Now look back at 1 Thess 2.1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our entrance to you, our coming to you, was not in vain. Now, you may wonder why I'm ending with this verse. Well, I think it's a great place to end because this verse is powerful. This verse is powerful. You may recall that Paul wrote to the, the 
Thessalonians to prove that their ministry was in fact from God. He contends that true gospel ministry will always result in true salvation. It will always result in a, a clear change in direction and in a conclusive change in destination. Paul's proof of this truth was the lives of the brethren in Thessalonica. Paul and his team had arrived in Thessalonica. He had preached the gospel. Many had believed and had turned from idols to serve a living and true God. Their direction was clearly changed. They they were now saved from the wrath to come. Their eternal destination had changed as well. All of that was profoundly true. Yet there was something even more amazing about Paul's gospel ministry in that church. None of it was in vain. It wasn't empty. The gospel had produced amazing change in the heart of those who heard it. Yet that's not the most amazing part. After the team had left, the Thessalonian church had stayed the course. Despite the obvious pressures to go back to their previous lives, uh, they had suffered so soon from the from the preaching of the gospel, they, they, had, they, they, they had suffered the, the wrath of those around them. And so there was obvious pressure to go back to their previous life after Paul had left to return to their dead idols. As a matter of fact, you can see in this letter that Paul is concerned about them because he doesn't want them to turn back. He loves them and he wants to see them uh, go to heaven and to be with the Lord. But they had not. They had not done so. And I would argue that the best translation would be that their coming to them had not become vain. It had not uh, become empty. The verb here is in the Greek perfect tense. Paul uses that tense to convey that their gospel preaching had produced a a clear change in the lives of the believer. Their, Their eternal destination had conclusively changed. And by the way, those results had not changed. Beloved, they were eternally secure. It was Paul's greatest proof that the gospel ministry, the preaching of the gospel, was effective. Beloved, it's what we need. We don't need anything else. We need to preach the gospel so that the the lost may be saved. The Lord Jesus promised, John 10, 27, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them. And they follow Me. And I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish. Ever. And no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You see, the Thessalonians, their eternal destination had changed. Uh, They had stayed the course in Paul's absence. And this enduring change was profound proof of true Gospel ministry. I love the the translation in the Legacy Standard Bible that I've been using, but I think the NET best captures Paul's intent here. It says, For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, about our coming to you. It has not proven to be purposeless. Church at Grace Bible Church, we are committed to our fourth pillar. We exist to evangelize the lost. 
We're committed to it because we long to see God's saving work of salvation in the lives of, lost, of the lost in Gainesville and beyond. Now, you may be thinking, I hope you're thinking, how do we see this happen here at Grace Bible Church? How do we see this? I want to see it. I want to see, I want to see the gospel go out. I want to see people come to know the Lord. I've asked that question many times. How do we see this happen? Well, first, we need to be committed to our first three pillars. We need to be committed to the exaltation of God. We exalt Him by proclaiming His excellencies. We exalt Him by praying without ceasing that He would reveal Himself to us in all His glory. We exalt Him by pleading with Him to show His glory by saving the lost. Secondly, we need to, be, we need to remain committed to the exposition of the Word. We do this by having confidence that His Word will not return void. We trust that, that all Scripture is God-breathed and, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we do this by understanding that preaching His Word has always been His plan. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, preach the Word. Preach the Word. Preach the Word. We do this by praying for the ministry of the Word. We need to pray that God would use this church's pulpit to preach His Word, no matter who's here, no matter who stands in this pulpit, that it, that, that person would always preach the Word. He would preach the Word in season and out of season, that we would reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and teaching. Third, we need to tirelessly, tirelessly equip the saints. We do this by believing Paul's formula for equipping, which he gives to the church at Colossae. He says we need to proclaim Christ, we need to proclaim Him. Him we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Lastly, we need to evangelize the lost. The result of all of this, the result of all of this is that you go out and you evangelize. You go out and you proclaim the excellencies of a holy God to a lost world. You proclaim the utter fallenness of humanity and the exclusive message of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that those around you may hear it and either reject it or, or come to believe it so that they may be saved. Beloved, I started this sermon with the story of the Great Awakening and of Martin Lloyd-Jones' ministry in Wales. You know, been a, there's a lot of talk about politics in the Christian circles. I dare say we tend to talk about politics at least as much as we talk about the gospel. Prove me wrong. If we want to see clear change in our culture, if we want to see clear change in this city and beyond, if we want to see people turn to the Lord and do what is right, live living righteous life, if we want lives, if we want to see that, then we'll do the same thing that Paul did in, in, in Thessalonica. We'll preach the gospel and we'll do it in power so that, uh, so that the lost may be saved. We want to see God move among His people. 
something other than dead orthodoxy, right? We want to see the Spirit move. Then we'll preach the truth of the gospel. Nothing else will do. God will only save souls through that truth. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. If God does not save men by truth, he certainly will not save them by lies. And if the old gospel is not competent to work a revival, then we will do without the revival. End quote. You know, I think of the churches that have the great worship band and, you know, they have great programs and all the things that are going on. Praise the Lord if, they, if they're preaching the gospel. But what we need is the gospel. We need, as in the words of Spurgeon, we need the old gospel to work the revival that we're all looking for. I pray that you will preach that old gospel of Christ crucified. I pray, pray that you will preach the gospel of a, a cross uh, where our Savior died for the sins of the world. I pray that you will preach it in your homes. I pray that you'll preach it in your workplaces. I pray that you'll preach that gospel as you go about your business, as you shop in the grocery store, as you go to the bank, whatever it is you're doing, I, I pray that you'll preach the gospel. And I pray that you'll support the ministry of this church. I pray that you'll invite other godly believers to join us in preaching His Word. Pray that you will pray. I, I, I hope that you'll continue to pray so that the gospel may go forth in this city, just like it did in Thessalonica. Do you believe? Let me I'll end with this. Do you believe what happened in Thessalonica can happen here? I hope so. Because I do. I do. Heavenly Father, we We come to you now again. My Lord, we pray that you would use this church starting in our homes, our places of work, Lord, I pray that you would lay it on your heart of your people. Preach the gospel. To evangelize the lost. To come and to see that, Lord, you are a Lord to be highly exalted. Father, that you have revealed yourself in your word. Lord, that we need to present everyone here complete in Christ so that they may go out and preach the gospel. I dare say, Lord, that's why you left us here. That's why you didn't just take us straight to heaven as soon as we believed. So that we might witness to you in this lot, to this lost and dying world. May we do that from this church. May you use us in that way. I pray that you would work even now in the hearts of those here and those hearing my voice, that the need to preach the cross. 
the need to preach Christ crucified. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.